الجزيرة بودكاست The shockwaves from the collapse of two U.S. banks have been felt around the world. It's the biggest failure since the 2008 financial crisis when stricter regulation came. So, what lessons can be learned from then and what happened now? I'm Mohamed Jamjoum and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests in New York. Richard Squire, professor at Fordham University's School of Law and an expert on bank bailouts. In London, Vicky Price, chief economic advisor at the Center for Economics and Business Research. And in Berlin, Ben Aris, founder and editor-in-chief of BNE IntelliNews. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Richard, let me start with you today. Why exactly did Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank fail? What are, what are the reasons behind these collapses? Sure, it's nice to be with you. So I, I think of this as basically uh, having two main reasons. One is macroeconomic, affecting the whole economy, and one is specific to these banks. The macroeconomic factor is that the U.S. Federal Reserve in the last few years, especially during the COVID years, printed a large amount of money to pay for COVID rescue and other federal deficit spending. This caused a large amount of money to come out into the economy, kind of like a a high tide of, of liquidity coming in. But then there was high inflation, and the Federal Reserve started to reverse that process. And so the money started coming out uh, again, and that's continuing. So when you have liquidity rising and falling, it creates basically rough financial seas. Some banks out there are seaworthy and can ride out that those buffets. Others cannot. And those two banks were not particularly seaworthy. They had uh, non-diversified exposure. to particular industries or to particular asset classes. And so when liquidity started to drain out, causing interest rates to rise, they experienced losses on their investments. And at the same time, they experienced loss of confidence among their depositors, causing the depositors to pull out their cash. Vicky, these are the biggest bank failures since 2008. Um, I want to ask you first, what were the lessons learned from 2008? And also, should the global financial markets have been in a better position after the financial crisis of 2008? That's very interesting. If you look back at where we were, because I remember working for the government at the time, at the financial crisis, um, there was all this discussion at the time about moral hazard, let's not rescue a particular bank, which may be in difficulty because everyone else would expect to be rescued. But I'm afraid what we did learn is that the financial markets can really be completely disincentivized to hold any shares at all, and, and uh, people would be incentivized to go and, uh, and take all the money out if there isn't support from government. So um, what we've seen right now is that there was very quick intervention, uh, and I think that looked like it was stabilizing the markets for a while, but it seems to me now that they will need to do more. So they've moved in, supported and are supporting with uh, government money, uh, federal money in the U.S., and, uh, and of course, here, too, uh, in the U.K., through um, the uh, insurance schemes that exist. Now, I have to just slightly correct myself, because, of course, the money that is being used uh, has been uh, said very clearly that it does not come from taxpayers, but it comes from whatever uh, it is that uh, the, the banking sector, the financial sector, Uh, is expected to pay for this and the deposit uh, you know, guarantee schemes that exist and, and funds that exist. Uh, but in reality, at the end of the day, whatever is being put in by 
the banking sector is going to have to be paid for somehow. And given that we haven't quite seen the end of it, who knows whether the taxpayer isn't going to be involved at some point. Ben, we live in a global banking world now, and, and the value of, of shares in some banks around the world have tumbled after the collapse of these, of these two banks in the U.S., and there is volatility in global markets. Um, what is the risk currently uh, when it comes to contagion in other countries? I think it's relatively small in so much as uh, this was a specialist bank specializing in tech and specifically, you know, lots of business in California and that it doesn't have a lot of exposure uh, or connections to the rest of the banking sector. I mean, here in Europe, uh, we saw stocks of banks um, across the board sort of tumble, but not by huge amounts, by two, three percent. That's a sort of level whereby everyone's nervous that they're adjusting their positions because something nasty has happened. There's been a big bank failure in the States, but it's not like the massive sell-offs we saw in 2008, where those banks, the US banks, were connected to everybody else, particularly here in Europe. Uh, exposure to these CDOs, these credit default options, the subprime market. Um, and then that spread very rapidly. However, because CBB uh, was so specialized in tech, the, the most damage we've seen are um, companies listed on the Warsaw Stock Exchange in the tech sector. Um, Estonia has a very vibrant ups, uh, startup market. They've been affected because it hits them worse, but it doesn't hit the sort of mainstream of the economy in Europe anyway. And so banks' stocks reacted, but mm. I think the contagion is not going to go very far unless there's a wider banking crisis in the States, which, as Vicky said at the moment, Fed's acted very fast. It's effectively bailed out or backed 100% of the deposits, which is unusual. Normally, it's insured up to $250,000. You can guarantee to get that money back. But for the Fed to come in and say everything, hundreds of millions of dollars, you'll get it all back, is unusual. Um, but that they've done to shore up the confidence, to stop the uh, contagion, to stop the spreading of, of uh, bank mm. failures. Uh, Vicky, I saw you nodding along to some of what uh, Ben was saying. That it looked mm -hmm. like you wanted to jump in, so I will let you do that. But, but let me ask you, I mean, do you agree? Do you think that Europe's not going to be particularly hard hit because of these bank failures? And, and also, you know, because we've heard now from the French finance minister, and he says that Europeans have mm -hmm. learned the lessons from 2008, uh, that there are no risks to the French banking system, at least. I mean, do you think that Europe is effectively insulated from this at this point? Not necessarily. I mean, the real worry is that, uh, of course, as was discussed earlier, uh, we've seen those increases in bond yields and we've seen those drops in bond prices and quite a lot of financial institutions had invested in those when sort of liquidity was being given sort of quite uh, easily into the system through the COVID crisis and also since with the energy crisis that we have seen. It's only recently that quantitative easing has stopped. So we moved into quantitative tightening in some parts um, of the world, not quite yet in Europe, but certainly in the UK. Um, and uh, what that has meant, of course, is that the value of all those holdings that uh, quite a lot of financial institutions have is now uh, you know, in doubt. And I think that is why um, we've seen credit rating agencies downgrade you know, the, the, the bank sector, if you like, the banking sector wholesale. Um, expecting that there would be problems and that it would be much more difficult than perhaps we anticipated at the very beginning of the, the, the crisis, this particular crisis, uh, last week um, that was going to be the case. So we thought mm. at the time it would be quite contained 
it looks like perhaps it isn't going to be so easily contained as we expected. Uh, Richard, let, let's talk for a minute about the political dimension to all of this uh, in the United States. Um, this is tricky territory for U.S. President Joe Biden because in, in 2010, you know, he stood next to former President Barack Obama when this new legislation that was regulating banks was signed into law. Uh, it was declared then and there that there would be no more tax-funded bailouts uh, in the U.S. Um, when Mr. Biden made a televised address earlier in the week, uh, he, you know, he, he didn't even use the word bailout. And critics are saying that his actions effectively constitute a bailout. I mean, what do you say and how difficult is this terrain for him to navigate? It's difficult to navigate politically. There's no doubt about it. If we define a bailout the way I think is the normal definition, which is a government rescue of a private company or private investors who otherwise would be taking losses, then this certainly is a bailout. But one thing that happened in 2008 in that crisis was that American politicians learned that it's very politically unpopular to be seen to be using the money, uh, taxpayer money from your average uh, American household to save bankers, especially rich or fat cat uh, bankers was the perception. So in the rescues that were given recently to Silicon Valley Bank and the Signature Bank, the government was careful not to rescue the managers themselves, they've lost their jobs, not to rescue the shareholders, and also not to rescue long-term investors in those banks, basically bondholders. So it was the fact that those groups are suffering loss that led President Biden to say this is not a bailout. But there is no doubt that there were people who were rescued, mainly the depositors in those companies. Now, sometimes we think depositors are just uh, regular individuals, households with maybe $50,000, $75,000 or less in a checking or savings account, in a deposit account. But with SVB in particular, we were talking about Silicon Valley startup companies and venture capital companies that had their corporate transaction accounts or their corporate checking accounts with SVB. One company, Roku, uh, streaming service, had more than $40 million on deposit uh, at SVB, which was, uh, as was mentioned earlier, well more than what normally is the insured amount of $250,000. So that company should have taken losses under the normal regime in mm. the absence of a bailout, or at least should have had to wait for a while mm. uh, to get a uh, recovery, but now will be being paid on time and in full. That's certainly a bailout. Uh, Vicky, um, one of the more interesting aspects about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank is that this had all the features of, of an old school bank run, but, but, but at the same time, this all kind of happened online. I mean, the speed at which this all unfolded really seems to be a feature of the digital age that we live in, right? And, and, and this is pretty different than the way this kind of thing used to unfold, correct? No, absolutely. So it can happen very quickly. But we are not talking here about retail depositors. These are all, as we've just been hearing, um, corporates. Uh, so 40,000 accounts, I think, there were in the bank. Um, which uh, were held by mainly tech, non, not exactly startups necessarily, but certainly tech companies that weren't necessarily making any profits yet. So uh, the sector, as we know, had been hit recently and, and losses were appearing, even bigger losses. And we've been hearing even today um, of cuts in, in the numbers employed even by the big tech firms. Uh, so what happened at the time is that some of those um, companies tried to get, you know, use some of the money they had in the bank to meet some of their own obligations, 
uh, and that seemed to have accelerated for some reason, you know, over the week. And it was the time when uh, Silicon Valley Bank tried to raise a bit more money to just balance its books and discovered that, of course, you know, everyone realized that uh, there was a bit of a problem. And when they looked at what they could sell to uh, indeed balance their books because they had made all those investments, uh, mainly in bonds and, uh, and, and mortgage securities, as far as I understand it, um, their value had fallen so significantly that they became insolvent almost immediately. And indeed, it was the rapidity uh, with which some of the money was disappearing that was uh, the problem for them. And it may not have happened normally. It would take a little bit more time and discussions and so on. And, and uh, it must have caught them unawares. Um, and they had to react quickly. And then that spread panic. Ben, uh, you heard Vicky there talk about the impact on the, the tech sector. I just want to ask you, uh, from your vantage point, um, if these actions hadn't been taken by the Biden administration, what kind of impact do you think would have that had on the tech sector going forward? And, and what are the wider ramifications of this throughout the U.S.? Yeah, exactly. I think it's interesting that it is the tech sector, um, which for the states is an extremely important one. Um, you know, it's got into this tech fight with China, where it's banned uh, all of its exports of, of tech to China, and that America is sort of looking, or the White House is looking at the tech sector to keep it in the lead, as it were, in the global race uh, for you know economic success. And that's one of the reasons why I think they acted so fast in order to back these these deposits completely, in order to not destroy the tech sector and give it, you know, put the tech sector specifically into a financial crisis. Because, I mean, as I say, what they've done is, is very unusual in so much as there's a um, thing called moral hazard that if you back all the deposits, then people take untoward risks. And in the, the way banks are supposed to fail is that people who have money beyond the guaranteed limit are supposed to lose it. And you make an example then, to, and then that makes people more cautious and do risk management. And if you put all your money in one bank, then maybe not thinking about the risk. And at the same time, the bank took, and this is one I think a uh, failure of the regulator, the bank took its huge risk, took its short-term liabilities, which are deposits can taken out from day to day, and invested into long-term uh, liability, um, things like mortgage-backed securities, which are inflation-sensitive. Uh, but then it didn't hedge against the fall or the change in the inflation rates. And that's a basic you know, banking 101 mistake. If you're going to do that kind of bet, you should hedge against it. So the Fed has been raising rates at the fastest time for, I forget, I don't know, for 20 years. I mean, it's really been going up quickly and it's made these, these assets of uh, SVB Bank go bad very fast. And that's something that the regulators should have picked up on and didn't. So people are pointing the finger there as well. But the moral hazard is an important point that you know, you're supposed to let this, um, the, the depositors suffer, lose their money, or at least the assets are in the bank and it could be recovered, but that would take time. It's not like they'll get money back today. They'll probably have to wait a year until whatever the assets are sold off and and rescued. And I don't think anybody wanted to go there. I mean, this is why the Fed came in and just said 100% of the deposits backed immediately mm. in order to keep the tech sector. And it's the taxpayer then, because the deposit insurance fund that's connected to retail, you pay a small tax every time you take a retail deposit in, that goes into a fund, and that covers the 250000 mm. So that's not on the taxpayer. That's from the banking sector itself. But when you start backing, guaranteeing like $100 million, that money mm -hmm. has to come from the taxpayer. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem here.
Uh, Richard, uh, it looked like you wanted to jump in. I will let you do that. But I, but I also want to ask you, um, Ben was talking about uh, the Fed. He was talking about uh, the raising of interest rates. Um, why does controlling inflation often seem to be the be-all and end-all when it comes to the Federal Reserve? And, and is the policy of raising interest rates too crude of a tool to really control inflation? Great. So let me react first to what Ben was saying. I just want to underline something about moral hazard, and then I'd, I'd like to talk to you uh, to talk to your question about the uh, about the Fed and about uh, interest rates. So right. first of all, I would say that there's a tremendous moral hazard here, and what is happening in order to bail out or ensure the depositors. And just to be clear, it's the depositors at those two banks that have had their limits basically waived and they'll get they'll recover in full. So that has not been announced for the whole food sector because of tremendous problems that, that, that would cause be caused as a result of that. That will come out of the FDIC's insurance fund, but that fund will have to be replenished and it will be replenished by what is called an assessment. But an assessment is just another word for a tax. Um, just like a rescue is another word for a bailout. We're reasonably using euphemisms here because words are highly charged. So other banks will have to pay that assessment, uh, which is a tax. And if you're, a ta you're paying a tax, in my view, you're a taxpayer, uh, that, that cost will ultimately born, be borne by the bank's customers and by the bank's shareholders, many of whom are average Americans who own bank stock as part of their retirement funds. So I, I think this is going to, in fact, I don't think there's any doubt, this will be borne ultimately by tax. Uh, payers. And there's a moral hazard there that's pretty perverse because notice what's happening is that the banks that were responsible and hedged risk appropriately, the way Ben was describing, mm. will now be on the hook to pay the depositors of the banks that were poorly run. Um, so that's the opposite of the incentive you want to create. In terms of uh, fighting inflation and how the Fed does that and why it does that, the Federal Reserve has to fight inflation for one reason, because Inflation is very clearly unpopular. It's very damaging uh, to uh, powers that to people in office. Um, there's no sure way uh, to get elected out of office in our Congress or our president than to oversee sustained inflation. And the Federal Reserve realizes that uh, if that happens, uh, then politicians may reduce its independence going forward. Mm. And so it can't be fully inundated from, from political considerations. It is supposed to be independence, uh, but it cannot be uh, fully independent from such political considerations. So it needs to inflation. The only long-term way or ultimately effective way to fight inflation is to reduce the amount of money in circulation. Inflation occurs when you have too much money chasing too few goods and services. And whenever you reduce the money stock or at mm. least arrest its growth, which is what the Fed is doing now, mm -hmm. interest rates have to go up. It's a supply and demand uh, law. Uh, uh, you can think of the interest rate as simply as the price of money going forward. So let's say I want to borrow some money uh, and I'm talking to various leaders. If they have lots of money to lend, then I'm at an advantage mm -hmm. because they'll compete with each other and I'll get a nice low interest mm -hmm. rate. But if money is tightened and they don't have as much to lend, they're going to charge me more. So I don't think the Fed can fight inflation without uh, the consequence mm -hmm. that interest rates rise. Uh, ben, it, it looks like you wanted to jump in. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that. Um, the Fed finds itself in a particularly difficult position. I mean, as you know, the inflation in the States is very high, and it needs to fight that. That means hiking rates. But then if it does hike rates, it slows the economy, and it puts pressure on more banks who are also exposed to similar investors, even if they're hedged. 
And same time, in order to take the pressure off the banking sector and to avoid the kind of contagion that Vicky was talking about, you know, where other people get scared and start selling or trying to sell their bonds and then the value falls and then boom, you have a spiraling uh, crisis. And so the, the Fed is caught between a rock and a hard place. Like, do they cut rates to save the banking sector mm. or do they hike, rate, hike rates to fight inflation? And that's a very tricky decision at the moment because, you know, a banking crisis would be far worse than having high inflation. But then if you don't take in um, account inflation, the inflation expectations go up, then that drives inflation and then inflation starts to run away from you and the Fed can't get it back under control. So this is a very delicate moment. And I think that's why you're hearing a lot of rhetoric, people um, trying to calm down the nerves, trying to say everything's under control. I think that's why they came with this 100% mm. backing of deposits very quickly because they need to kill this off as fast as possible and go back to hiking rates in order to deal with the inflation problem. Vicky, um, just to take a step back for a moment and simplify this a little bit for, for our viewers, um, when it comes to the Fed, how much impact does the Federal Reserve have on the European Central Bank and on what the European Central Bank ultimately does? It's really interesting. I think everyone follows what others are doing. It doesn't necessarily mean that they will raise rates at the same rate. In fact, the European Central Bank is, is determined, it says at present, whatever President Macron and others may have said about uh, the financial system in France, they, they seem to be determined to raise um, interest rates by their central bank rate by 50 basis points in the next meeting. Uh, very hawkish um, language being used right now, which in a way is a bit strange given that inflation is coming down almost everywhere and it's coming down not because of anything that the central banks have done, but because of a drop in energy prices. And food prices have been falling internationally for the last 10, 11 months, although we haven't quite seen that in the shops yet. But that all is making a big, big difference. And we had the um, uh, announcement of our own budget and the forecast accompanying it suggests that even in the UK inflation will more than halve by the end of the year. Not really anything to do with the central bank interest rates, frankly, but because of international factors. Uh, but nevertheless, they're all looking at each other and there is a bit maybe of group thing going on uh, that uh, we need to raise rates in order to uh, control inflation when we know that it takes a long time for increases in interest mm. rates to have an impact. I think it's much more the real worry is much more at the longer end of the market. It's mm. really what's been happening with bonds, quantitative tightening. Um, but even if we discount that for a second, what I noticed is that the expectations of the market, which were possibly for other 25 basis point increase in, in the Fed, uh, interest central rate, bank mm -hmm. rate, well, it's got the three rates it, it looks at, of course, uh, mm -hmm. or um, 50 basis points or 25 basis points increase, we may see zero. The market suddenly mm -hmm. expects zero increase in mm -hmm. order to do precisely what has just been discussed, calm the markets down. Uh, Richard, we only have a couple of minutes left. Uh, let me just ask you, uh, the Federal Reserve is weighing tougher rules for mid-sized banks going forward. Do you think this is going to happen and, and how tough could those new rules be? I think there will be some uh, rule issued uh, that will probably be targeted specifically at the problems that we saw at these banks. Something along the lines of better um, interest rate risk management, so uh, banks would have to show some kind of hedging uh, to manage the risk that occurs to their investment portfolios, especially when you see interest rates rising to fight inflation. So there may be something along uh, those lines. I don't think it's going to be especially risk. It may be disclosure rules more than anything else. Disclosure rules enable or make it easier for depositors to see whether they're 
above insurance limit uh, deposits will be at risk and to diversify accordingly. I don't think, at least the news so far, uh, is that the House of Representatives, uh, which is led right now by the or is in the control of the Republican Party, would have an appetite for, for approving strong uh, new regulations. But in, whenever you have a situation like this, you kind of, uh, mm -hmm. or a crisis like this, and some large bank failures, you do have kind of a just so response to mm -hmm. say, okay, let's have a new rule that targets the specific thing that happened. And I think we will see some of that. All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Richard Squire, Vicki Price, and Ben Aris. This episode was produced by German Fleming, Osama Aluni, Aiseba Umutlu, and Jimmy Gerahun. Studio sound was by Yara Atallah. The program was edited by Hatim Shabal, Lynn Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next show. Thank you.